Romans and are done for us. Hello and thanks for downloading. My name's Neil and you're listening to the Ancient History Hound podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Ancient Blogger and more ancient history stuff at my website ancientblogger.com. If you have a moment, why not check it out? In this podcast, I'm continuing my cheery examination of human sacrifice in antiquity and now look at Greece and Rome. In part one, I looked to the Near East, Mesopotamia, Carthage and the like. You don't need to have listened to part one, although I do make some references to it in this podcast. As mentioned, Greece and Rome now come under the spotlight and in different ways. For obvious reasons, things do get a tad gruesome and I feel I should just make that point right now. On the upside, I've tried to season it with the occasional pun and quip. If nothing, it helped me get through recording it all. I'm going to start then with the Greeks. If there's one thing you can say about Greek myth, it's that it doesn't avoid more or less every taboo you can think of. Incest, cannibalism, parricide, and just about every type of shock behaviour is met by gods and mortals alike, and that's just the weekends. Little wonder then that though the Greeks abhorred human sacrifice, their hands were not clean by any stretch of the imagination. In the course of the Trojan War, 14 individuals were sacrificed in some form or another, and all by Greeks. How this was positioned by the Greeks, understood by them, and how they envisaged it happening is what I'm going to look into first, and it starts right at the beginning when the Greeks were yet to sail to Troy. Picture the scene. You're Agamemnon and have assembled the Greek army at Aulis. All the heroes are there, and yet you can't leave because the winds just were not favourable. Calchas, the seer, has told you that Artemis will change the winds and allow you to leave as long as you make a sacrifice, but not a regular one. Calchas has informed you that the offering has to be Iphigenia, your daughter. The sacrifice of Iphigenia, simply put, is a brutal myth, but one which, like many myths, varies. And in the 5th century BCE, two playwrights wrote plays which handled this and which survived. The first was Aeschylus, who described what happened in the play Agamemnon, the first play of the Oresteia trilogy, which is dated to around the mid-5th century BCE. The play deals with Agamemnon's triumphant return from the Trojan War, and the chorus of the elders recount how he struggled with the awful requirement made of him. This is a different Agamemnon from the Iliad, where he's presented as a king who really isn't good at much. Of course, you might be thinking, that's not really much of a conundrum. Just, just don't go. Well, I think we need to consider the concept of the Homeric Code a little. The fact that Agamemnon went ahead with the sacrifice somewhat underlines how important it was to lead the army against Troy and keep the oath he had made to his brother. Aeschylus' account of the sacrifice is short, but anything like sweet. Iphigenia is led against her will to the altar. She is gagged and held above the altar like a goat. And in particularly sad detail, Aeschylus writes how her eyes pleaded with the onlookers, but with no success. Those familiar with sacrifice in the Greek world, and I mean the more conventional sacrifice involving animals, might recognise this as an inversion of the standard requirement where an animal is complicit in the act of sacrifice. The animal doesn't resist, and any animal who behaved in such a fashion would most likely stop the sacrifice from happening. Avoiding such disruptive behaviour was relatively easy. For a starter, most animals, such as cattle, were used to people being around them. And they weren't that suspicious and there was also the trick of bribing them with food to act in the right way. But with Iphigenia, there is nothing remotely consensual. She is prevented from moving and speaking, the latter 
has some interesting readings. It could be that this prevented her from issuing a curse, and another theory has it that this placed her into the realm of a sacrificial animal, and she is denied that unique human trait, speech. Perhaps a more solid animal motif linking with Iphigenia is the mention of her being held above the altar like a goat. This seemingly specific reference might be to a sacrifice made to Artemis Agatera, where a goat was held aloft above the altar. This sacrifice also has links to a pre-battle sacrifice made again to Artemis. A question worth chewing over is whether this is a nudge to an older tradition of humans being sacrificed before a battle. After all, the Greek army at Aulis is just about to do this. It's going to leave Greek shores to make war upon a foreign enemy. The second playwright with surviving plays is Euripides. He wrote two plays which featured Iphigenia. There was Iphigenia in Tauris, written around 414 BCE, and Iphigenia in Aulis, which was later, in around 405 BCE. Iphigenia in Aulis takes this instance of sacrifice and explores it more deeply. I won't go through it all, but suffice to say Agamemnon again plays the part of a king torn between his options. Iphigenia is lured to a sacrifice by the facade of it being a marriage ceremony with her marrying Achilles, and when Achilles finds out the true plans, he's not happy, the irony of which we'll see shortly. Euripides sets the sacrifice of a human within the context of traditional sacrifice. Iphigenia is garlanded, she is led willingly, albeit under false pretenses, and eventually submits to her fate. The cutting of her throat is specifically referenced, and this is how most animals were sacrificed. This detail is important in linking the two, and in Iphigenia's case, this is particularly relevant, and I'll get to why in a moment. Curiously, and before the big twist, Iphigenia refers to herself as the firstborn, and I wonder, after listening to part one, whether this was a weightier point made. Just to recap, in part one, the firstborn was often mentioned as a suitable choice when sacrificing a child or infant. The big twist, which I'll now come to, is that she is and isn't sacrificed, a sort of Greek sacrificial Schrodinger's cat. At the last minute, Artemis spirits her away and a stag is left in her place with its throat cut. This causes some confusion, which I think is fair enough, and it's not understood by the characters exactly where she is, but they eventually conclude she's with the gods. I think it's worth recapping on this. A character is asked by a deity to sacrifice their firstborn, and at the last minute, heavily intervention provides a substitute. If you did listen to part one, you'll be familiar with the tale of Abraham and Isaac. It feels very similar. An argument which I included in the reference to the Abraham and Isaac incident was that it helped explain the movement from a sacrifice which at one time involved a human to one where an animal was accepted in place. The myth was a cultural explanation of the change from the old to the new. In short, people aren't needed for sacrifice anymore. It's okay. Animals will now make do. Iphigenia's substitution wasn't just restricted in a play format. Vases, including a 4th century BCE crater, featured the scene, I recently posted this on my Instagram, and in case you're wondering, the substitution scene is depicted by a deer sort of behind the figure of Iphigenia. You can make out its head and legs. It goes to show that Greek art wasn't always about a static moment in time. The million-obel question, of course, is where did Iphigenia go? The answer was Taurus, which is in the modern-day Crimean Peninsula. Euripides didn't afford her a nice condo, an easy life, given all she'd gone through. Instead, she was made the priestess of Artemis' temple there, and her job was to purify any Greek male who ended up there because, you guessed it, any Greek man wandering around in that part of the world, particularly shipwrecked sailors, was going to be sacrificed. The temple she worked in is described as having a bloody altar, 
and skulls hanging from the ceiling, which is a further inversion of the Greek norm, where sacrifices took place on an altar outside of the temple. Herodotus adds support to the myth. In book four of his histories, he notes how the Tories sacrifice any shipwrecked sailors they find to the maiden goddess. The Tory apparently claimed that the goddess they offer to is Agamemnon's daughter Iphigenia. If anyone took a prisoner of war, they'd cut off their head and set it on a pole. For the Greeks, this part of the world was Scythian country, and elsewhere Herodotus attributes the Scythians a bloodthirstiness in their worship which is as gruesome as it was bizarre. When Scythians sacrificed prisoners of war to Ares, they chose one from every hundred and cut his throat. The rest were killed and their right hands chopped off and left where they fell as a sort of tribute. In part one I discussed how human sacrifice was often taken up a notch when it involved a royal death. The Scythians certainly echo this theme. The dead king is buried and his concubine, cupbearer, groom, cook, squire and his messenger all strangled and placed along with him. This is very reminiscent of the attendant sacrifices of part one and left there we could connect this to this type of burial, except it escalates. A year later, 50 of the most trusted king's servants are strangled. Presumably these were the old king's servants. They also strangle 50 of the best horses, which I don't know if is even possible, but let's assume it is. The servants are cleaned out and stuffed with straw and then sewn up. The dead servants are set on the dead horses by fixing them with a stake which passes into the ground and these are set around the tomb of the dead king. I'm unsure if this is simply an exaggeration or invention, but it does carry motifs which are certainly familiar from part one and on which I'll be mentioning more than once in this episode. In case you haven't listened to part one, attendant sacrifice is exactly what it sounds like. People and animals sacrifice the death of a noble so they can serve him. This type of sacrifice neatly segues back to the Trojan War because our next instance feels a lot like attendant sacrifice. For the incident, we'll need to get our copy of Homer's Iliad, where 12 Trojans met their end at the funeral of Patroclus and each were killed by Achilles. In Euripides, Achilles isn't exactly happy at Iphigenia being killed by Agamemnon, though for the most part it was actually being annoyed at being used in part of the ruse where she thinks she's marrying him. And I realise that Euripides comes after Homer by a few centuries, but it's safe to say that Achilles has a very different view on human sacrifice according to the Iliad. Following the death of Patroclus, Achilles is enraged and we aren't surprised by this. The first word of the Iliad translates roughly to wrath, though not the type we get from losing your keys or stubbing your toe. The word menace, and apologies for my pronunciation, translates as the wrath of a demigod, a rage beyond the capacity of a human, and it's easy to read the poem with the heightened passion of Achilles as a continual backdrop. In Book 18, he promises to avenge Patroclus. He swears to him that he will not bury his comrade till he carries back the gear and the head of the person who killed him. He adds, and I quote, Before your funeral pyre, I'll cut the throats of twelve resplendent children of the Trojans. That is my murdering fury at your death. In Book 21, he captures the Trojans after butchering those in the streams of the Scamander River. And in Book 23, he speaks to the corpse of Patroclus, confirming he's lived up to his word, and then sacrifices them. The incident is often missed by readers of the Iliad, and perhaps it's due to the intense nature of the narrative where it features, but it's not without comment. The scene of Achilles offering sacrifice featured as a painting on a tomb which dated to 325 BCE, though we lack any surviving artwork from nearer Homer's time. But what can we make of this all? There are some logical inconsistencies. For example, 
As a satisfaction for revenge, it doesn't quite add up. Surely Hector is the person upon which vengeance is visited. Homer implies in the quote from Book 18 that this is all driven by the murderous fury, but as D. Hughes concludes in his book Human Sacrifice in Ancient Greece, the additional sacrifice and ritual is, and I quote, vengeance of a different order. Hughes makes some very interesting conclusions. For him, the importance of 12 Trojans as a number is because it's a good realistic but large number. If Achilles had captured 30 for sacrifice, it might look excessive and perhaps unbelievable. Three or four Trojans, on the other hand, well, might bother. The number 12 was a unit used 60 times in the Iliad and Odyssey, a lovely stat there from Hughes, and it's employed to qualify amounts of various things. It's a good, sound, solid number, and also may have worked well in the hexameter verse. As such, we might consider this a stylistic device, rather than 12 offering a specific comment or insight to that type of sacrifice. Hughes further comments on the funeral as a whole. Dogs and horses were also slain for the purpose of the funeral. What we have here is a sacrifice to a person, and in a manner far more similar to the attendant sacrifice ritual. But here we meet a problem, because the afterlife wasn't a particularly nice place, well, according to Homer. In the Odyssey, the shades appearing to Odysseus don't exactly give it a five-star TripAdvisor rating. There isn't a sense built of a glamorous type of afterlife where attendants and hunting dogs might play a role, or even have a function. For Hughes and others, this is because Homer was appropriating an older custom of sacrifice. In the older custom, it could serve to provide attendance and satiate the spirit of the deceased, which could cause problems, and we'll see an example of this shortly. What Homer did was add a twist to the narrative, where the sacrifice was undertaken out of rage, as opposed to a standard ritual of the time. Hughes neatly wraps this up by saying, the poet of the Iliad had forgotten or misunderstood the true meaning of an obsolete practice preserved in an epic tradition. In our sacrifice count, we are down to our last victim, at least in terms of the Trojan War. I would like to say we bid farewell to Achilles and co, but sadly not, and especially so for poor Polyxena, a Trojan princess in the wrong place at the wrong time. In the beginning of the podcast, I asked you to picture a scene, or rather a dilemma Agamemnon had, but now I'm going to describe a scene as depicted on an Attic black figure amphora which dates to around 570 BCE. On it, three soldiers carry the figure of Polyxena. She's held across them like a roll of carpet. From one end, her pure white feet stick out, and at the other end, a far more gruesome outcome is playing out. A Greek soldier, identified as Neoptolemus, Achilles' son, holds her head back and has a sword in her neck. Blood sprays out onto a mound below. It's one of the more disturbing images in Greek art, at least in my opinion, and to that end, I even featured it on a pumpkin I did for Halloween last year. It's an unlikely plug, but I need what I can get, and you can find these on my ancientblogger.com website. This image wasn't in the mind of a macabre attic artist. A sarcophagus found in Turkey and dating to the turn of the 5th century BCE has Polyxena being held again, but this time facing upwards as her neck is cut. It must have been a relatively iconic image, as Pausanias, writing in the 2nd century CE, mentioned a painting in an entrance building on the Acropolis. Here, she was about to be sacrificed, and Pausanias commented that Homer did well to leave out this horribly cruel action. The obvious questions are, why was this needed? What was the rationale? According to myth and the two surviving plays, the demand was made by the ghost of Achilles. 
Following the sack of Troy, the Greeks are about to set sail and they are prevented by Achilles, who in Euripides' play Hecuba appeared in golden armour above his tomb and wouldn't let the Greeks leave until he'd been given Polyxena as an offering. It's a case of a virgin noble being sacrificed to ensure that a voyage can be made and you'll probably be thinking that this sounds a bit like Iphigenia. Well, you're not wrong. And I did read a point that virgin sacrifice both started the Trojan War and was the final act of it. And for those who've listened to part one, you might again think of Jephthah, who sacrificed his virgin daughter as a result of a military success, and thus the end of a war. Euripides has Polyxena almost relieved to be sacrificed, versus having to serve as a slave for a Greek noble. This acceptance of her fate seems at odds with the earlier vase image, where she was being forcibly held. Could this be an invention of the playwright? Was there an attempt to refashion her in this way? Well, if so, it worked. A speech attributed to the 4th century orator Demosthenes has her dying a noble death. Ovid recalled her as both brave and miserable, adding she was more than just a female. The idea that a noble nature surpassed her gender is picked up by Lucian, who wrote in the 2nd century CE and quipped she was more of a man than most of the actors who often played her. Courtney J.P. Friesen observes in Euripides' account of Polyxena's death that she offers Neoptolemus the choice of cutting her throat or stabbing her in the chest, and that this choice resembled the way a sacrifice was made and how a hero is typically killed. Seen from this perspective, the Trojan princess is acting beyond the scope of the expectations of her as a woman. She could also be killed as a man. The link between Achilles and Polyxena isn't wholly explained, yet there were myths connecting the two, and in the context of marriage. In one myth, Achilles saw her on the walls of Troy and asked for her hand. Another, he saw her when he was visiting a temple outside Troy. In both instances, Achilles is given a choice. He can marry her, but only if he gets the Greeks to leave. The nuptial motif was apparent in the sacrifice of Iphigenia. You might remember that she was lured to the Greek camp, thinking she was going to marry Achilles. Does this complete some form of cycle? Achilles' marriage leads to one sacrifice, or a faux marriage, and even one from beyond the grave. Euripides doesn't just play with the idea of human sacrifice in these plays. In one of my favourite plays, the Bacchae, we have more familiar themes and elements, but they hang behind the narrative. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through the play, but in it we have a character called Pentheus, who is persuaded to go to observe some menads or followers of Dionysus, where he's killed by them. Explained this way, it doesn't sound particularly relevant to this topic, just a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yet if I had the following details, it might sound a bit more familiar. Pentheus is persuaded to go along by Dionysus, who obviously has a hidden motive. Pentheus is also dressed specifically to do this. We have a character, complicit and garlanded, and when he spies on Dionysus' followers, they catch him and tear him apart. The manner of his death doesn't sound especially sacrificial, but in the worship of Dionysus, there was a type of sacrifice called Sparagmos, in which the animal was torn apart. Pentheus then has a lot of the attributes we'd expect of an animal being sacrificed. At this point you might be thinking, yeah, okay, but, but these are just myths, and that would be true. It's difficult to build a case for much of anything on the back of myths. In the plays I've mentioned, you could easily argue that the sacrifices were dramatic narrative devices, employed to ramp up the intensity of a situation and the characters which orbit it. This is undoubtedly true, but it doesn't make it mutually exclusive. In films, car chases are often used to ramp up the action and add a bit of drama, but it doesn't mean that they are purely the invention of the movie industry. 
Human sacrifice didn't just exist in the theatres and the creative spaces of ancient Greece. For contemporary mention of human sacrifice, I can turn to our good friend Herodotus. In fact, in part one I mentioned him as being a non-sorth for the Carthaginian practice of child sacrifice. And what I mean by this is that those who think it didn't happen say, if it did happen, Herodotus would have surely talked about it. Herodotus' reference to human sacrifice falls within a pattern which we might recognise. It was something done by Greeks, something done by barbarians, and something done by mythical characters. On the latter, he wrote that Menelaus' voyage home from Troy involved him stopping Egypt, and, unable to leave due to prevailing winds, he sacrificed a child. Amestris, a wife of Xerxes, is recorded as having buried several sons of noble birth as an offering to the underworld gods, and Plutarch, writing a bit later, repeats this, albeit upping the victim count from 7 to 12. There's also the account of a particular ritual in Halos, which is in Achaea. Here, the members of a particular family are forbidden to enter the council chamber because if they do, they are garlanded and sacrificed. I'm sure this can be unwrapped further, but it does tick off the Greeks did it too checklist, or at least funds that idea. And if you thought, okay, but this is Herodotus, well, Plato commented that humans were offered as sacrifice in Lycaea, which I'll come to later. Though much later, a writer called Porphyry of Tyre cited near-contemporary sources such as Theophrastus and Philarchus, who both commented on human sacrifice. Theophrastus is more generalised and says it happened, albeit a long time ago. Philarchus is more specific. He is reported as saying that all Greeks used to sacrifice men before going to war. The latter point does keep that link between sacrifice and war seen in the myths mentioned and in part one. It's a connection that, pun intended, doesn't die away. The later writers often recorded human sacrifices going on in Greece. For Plutarch, who wrote in the 1st century CE, three famous characters were said to have been involved either directly or non-directly in it. Agesilaus, a Spartan king, fell asleep whilst at Aulis and heard a voice telling him to imitate Agamemnon's sacrifice, but he instead offered a deer. Sensible choice, unless, of course, you were the deer. Pelopidas was a famous Theban who also had an odd dream. In it, he was prompted to sacrifice a virgin with red hair at some nearby tombs. This would guarantee victory over his enemies. After waking up, he told the seer who was camped with the army. A big discussion broke out, which generally thought the idea of human sacrifice not, a, not particularly advisable. During the discussion, a horse with an auburn mane ran into the camp. The seer read this as the intended victim, though presumably they never inquired as to the horse's sexual history. Once garlanded and led to the tombs, the horse was then sacrificed. Plutarch's recount of Pelopidas' nightmare, which ended up being a bad end for a literal mare, also mentioned human sacrifice at a historic battle which I think you'd have heard of. In September 480 BCE, the Greek naval forces faced off against the Persians at Salamis, and the Greeks recorded a famous victory. The Athenian general Themistocles apparently sacrificed three Persians just before the battle. That Themistocles would do such a thing does raise eyebrows. It's more than possible that this was a smear made against him by political enemies, something he was never short of. But a human sacrifice made out of the outset of a desperate battle, well, again, it's nothing new. Sparta, never to be outdone, had its involvement as well. After a quarrel left an altar to Artemis covered in human blood, an oracle delivered the news that at Orthia, human sacrifice was now demanded. Here we meet Artemis again. The Artemis of the classical period with a friendly animal in tow and holding a small bow feels very much like the goddess next door, but there was obviously something a bit more dark to her worship and her background. 
she had skeletons in her closet, or at least on her altar. According to Pausanias, Lycurgus, as part of his reforms of Sparta, replaced the horrible practice with a slightly less horrible one. Instead, young boys were selected and whipped in order to satiate Artemis. A priestess would stand behind holding a wooden image of the goddess, and if it got heavy in her hands, it needed more blood. If it got happier, it became lighter. This is probably more an example of sensationalism from Pausanias than actual practice. Just in case you haven't come across Pausanias much, he wrote what we might think of as a traveller's guide to mainland Greece. Want to know how that grove got its name, or what hero was celebrated in that village? Well, he's your man. At Potnae in Boeotia, a priest of Dionysus was killed when everyone drank too much. Pestilence followed, and you guessed it, an oracle reported that the boy was required to be sacrificed. On a happier note, this requirement was then changed to a goat. Like Iphigenia, it's another instance of substitute sacrifice. Here we have myth informing ritual. Like, as I said, Iphigenia's last-minute replacement, myth can provide an explanation as to why a particular rite has taken its current form. And I want to move on to the next myth, which combines ritual and a physical location, where I can start to bring the tangible into all of this. Mount Lycaon is in the region called Arcadia, which sits in the middle of the southern Peneplice of Greece. It's here that both Pliny the Elder and Pausanias link that act of human sacrifice, albeit in very different ways. Pausanias isn't at all comfortable about discussing this. He wrote that it was at this altar that they offer a secret sacrifice to Lycaon Zeus, and then commented, but I could see no pleasure in pursuing inquiries about this sacrifice. Let it be as it is and as it was from the beginning. Pausanias was writing in the 2nd century CE, and some have suggested that this attempt to leave out any detail was because human sacrifice was still practised. Perhaps it was done so in some secret club or secret capacity, and Pausanias was scared of letting on. It's a juicy conspiracy theory, if nothing else. Pliny the Elder is far more specific about this, and it forms his famous description of a sort of werewolf cult there, with human sacrifice as a part of it. If you wanted to know more about this, check out my Night of the Livy Dead podcast, says I know I covered it there. Excavations at Mite Laocon haven't revealed anything apart from what was an important cult site to Zeus. Though obviously something spooked Pausanias, we need a retrospective episode of the X-Files, although we probably have to call it the Ten Files. The physical evidence for human sacrifice in Greece doesn't really amount to much. This isn't particularly surprising. In part one, I briefly outlined how difficult it can be to take remains which date back to, say, the 1st and 2nd millennium BCE, and say this was a human sacrifice. At Knossos on Crete, the remains of children with distinctive cut marks on the bones have been argued as sacrificial victims. On Cyprus, at tomb at Castros, contained three adult skeletons, which were treated in a way which suggested that they'd been killed and buried there. On mainland Greece, tombs at Mycenae have the familiar, if you listen to part one, type of placement of bodies which suggested attendant sacrifice. Ultimately though, no great example will reveal. With the ancient Greeks, and I apologise for the sweeping term and generalisation, evidence of human sacrifice is far easier to find in their myths and their tales. It's worth considering these as what they were. Not factual accounts, obviously, but often containing or relating to events which may have occurred. Perhaps virgin sacrifice was practised in unique circumstances at the outset of a military campaign or a fertility rite linked to agriculture. These either died out, as it were, or the ritual changed in such a way as to permit 
a similar sacrifice just with an animal instead. And what better way than a myth where the deity herself steps in and changes the victim from a young girl to a deer. But sometimes this isn't seamless. And I say this because there are two rituals which feel as if they once involved human sacrifice as an outcome. The first is the Thargalia, which took place in Athens and belongs to a wider type of ritual involving pharmakoi. To start with, I should define what a pharmakoi was, and possibly the easiest way is to say scapegoat. A community would identify and select a person or persons, and they would punish on behalf of them, either to purify the community or alleviate a particular problem. The Thargalia was a festival for Apollo and Artemis, the latter, of course, most likely on your radar by this point. Here, a man and a woman were chosen and then led around the city. They were garlanded and given fig, cheese and cakes to hold. And as they went around the city, they were whipped and abused. As to their end, we're unsure. Being sacrificed is obviously one option and it's been posited, but it's also plausible that they were exiled, which can be seen as a symbolic type of killing. Alternatively, all of it was symbolic and they were just let back in once perhaps they'd reached the border. Given that other cities and communities celebrated the Thargalia, or a ritual like it, there's no way it was standardised. For example, we've got a fragment of Hipponax, the archaic poet, and he mentions the beatings and the ritual, but doesn't say anywhere that they were killed. A different type of pharmacoi ritual occurred at Lucas, the modern-day island of Lefkada, and more specifically upon the famous cliff called the White Rock, which gives you an idea of where this is heading. Strabo, who lived in the 1st centuries BCE and CE, wrote that each year the locals sacrificed a criminal as a pharmacoi by hurling him off the cliff into the sea. Though the fool was likely to kill you, if you survived, the boats below would take you to the borders and you'd be exiled. Strabo also mentions they had feathers attached to them, which makes me think of a local birdman competition they have in my hometown of Worthing, where people jump from the pier and try to travel as far as they can. Yeah, I know how that sounds. But I think Strabo is confusing this with another ritual which occurred where those afflicted with unrequited love would jump to help them be cured. I've written about this on my ancientblogger.com website, so you can find the article there. A less spectacular, but equally as brutal instance of pharmacoi being killed was mentioned by Callimachus in Abdera, which is located in Thrace. Each year, the entire community was purified by someone being selected and simply stoned to death. It's possible to find accounts of human sacrifice ensconced in both the myths of ancient Greeks and their rituals, Looked at in a vacuum, you could write it all off and make a case that here the Greeks were exploring the taboos and helped them define their culture by explaining what they didn't do. Yeah, I think this is a bit of an inflexible approach. It presents the Greeks as a unified, homogenous bunch, which they often weren't. It also supposes that a practice which was evident elsewhere, near and around Greece, was never transmitted across and wasn't picked up culturally in some way. Take the sacrifice of the Trojan princes as a good example of something Homer reinterpreted. Then we have Artemis involved in a number of sacrificial or near-sacrificial events. What Greece is able to do is place this deep in the past and mitigate human sacrifice as belonging to a culture which has since moved on. However, perhaps it might not always have been in the past. Just remember, what goes on at Mount Lyacon stays at Mount Lyacon. I'm going to move into Rome now. And Rome, because it was Rome, did things very differently. Or at least, that's what they probably told themselves. And that's because my first example of human sacrifice in Rome involves a famous poem which also dealt with the Trojan War, albeit the aftermath of it. The Aeneid follows Aeneas in his voyage to Italy where he settled. 
It was written for Augustus, and as such, the poem wasn't exactly soaking with historical accuracy, and I don't think that will shock anyone listening. Much like the Iliad, this poem featured a funeral where, and I quote, four sons of Sulmo and the same number reared by Ufans were taken and sacrificed to Pallas at his funeral, as well as a number of cattle. The obvious comparison here is that made with the Trojan princes at Patroclus' funeral, and Virgil's work is useful in that we can see that human sacrifice was still being referenced even if it was largely to flag other works and plays. What we need is something wholly Roman, an example which doesn't belong anywhere else, and luckily another poet of the 1st century BCE and turn of the 1st century CE, Ovid, did just that. In his work on the festivals of Rome, which is called Fasti, a rite called the Argei is mentioned, that's A-R-G-E-I, and I apologise for my pronunciation. In this, straw figures were thrown into the Tiber each May by the priests from the Pons Supplicus, a wooden bridge which no longer exists. Even outside the context of this podcast, this sort of thing might raise an eyebrow, or perhaps I've just watched too many horror films and have a strong reaction to anything which involves dolls or effigies of humans. Ovid doesn't exactly know the origin of the rite, but offers some options, one of which was that originally two people were thrown into the river, presumably bound as a sacrifice to Saturn. That was until Hercules appeared, who changed it into a much nicer ritual. This is the line which Dionysus of Halicarnassus, who was writing at a similar time, followed in his Roman Antiquities. Thankfully, Dionysus was able to fill in some gaps. His exploration of what happened is understandably more detailed, but comes to a similar conclusion. The rite used to involve humans, but now, thankfully, a far safer option. That is, unless, of course, you're with Dorothy and on the way to the Emerald City. Think about it. The Argai was a ritual with purification as its cornerstone. Rome employed a number of religious institutions to help keep the gods on side. And one of the most important of these were the women tending the sacred flame, the Vestal Virgins. The Vestals were a fascinating group of women existing with a sort of social freedom which most women could only ever dream of. I suppose you can think of them as a sort of physical compass of the city that were bound to it, and if you wanted to learn more about them, my episode on Numa, Rome's second king, goes into detail as, as to how they functioned and interacted. But of course, such responsibility came at a price. If the flame went out, or if bad portents were noted, Vestals could be punished. Worse still was if a Vestal was convicted of losing her chastity, a crime called incestum. And if a Vestal was convicted, then a horrible fate followed. This was recorded by Plutarch, and I quote, she is buried alive near the Colleen Gate. A small chamber is built underground with steps leading down. In this, a small couch is placed with coverings, a lit lamp and some provisions, such as food and water. The culprit is placed on a litter which is covered and fastened down. All the people act in silence when the letter reaches its destination. They unfasten the cords and the chief priest utters a prayer before leaving her by the steps. After she has gone down, the steps are taken up and earth is thrown down to cover the entrance hiding it away. There's plenty to take from this, but perhaps the most immediate is the question of who is doing the killing. So far, sacrifices do involve someone doing the killing, but here no one is technically doing really much of anything. One argument I read suggested that there was a worry over killing a Vestal directly, as she was, well, after all, a senior religious figure. The irony would be that you would punish a Vestal for bringing pollution into the city, and then proceed to pollute it further by killing her. Burying a Vestal alive therefore gave Rome a way out. 
Their collective hands were washed clean. Plus, there was a belief that if she was truly innocent, a god might just rescue her. There is also an overarching question as to whether this was a sacrifice. Well, in many ways, I find it fulfilling the definition of a sacrifice in the context of functioning to restore religious equilibrium, in short, keeping the gods happy. Now, a question you might have is, how did the Vestal die exactly? Well, the most probable answer would be lack of oxygen. But I wanted to be a bit more specific. For example, how long would it take? And of course, that's impossible to answer as we don't know how big the chamber was. So I came up with a chamber that was six feet high, four feet wide and six feet long if that makes sense. Given that the Vestal had provisions and a small couch, it obviously wasn't a stone coffin, but I can't imagine the chamber being particularly big either. With these dimensions, an average person would have around 26 hours of air to breathe before the oxygen was used up. But you wouldn't just drop dead at this point. From what I could work out, and I should further underline that I'm not a scientist or expert in this, the real problem would be the increasing levels of carbon dioxide, which would be accruing in the chamber. After 10 hours, you'd start to feel the effects of this, something called hypercapnia or respiratory acidosis, the first symptoms of which would be headaches and feeling drowsy. The point at which this becomes fatal would be around the 17-hour mark. Chances are, on the upside, you'd have passed out by this point. I suppose it's a small mercy. Note to self, delete my browser history and burn my notes. I'm going to move from the area around the Colleen Gate to the forum, because it was here that the three instances are recorded of live burials. Not Vestals this time, but as I'll explain, there was a connection between them and these instances. In 228 BCE, 216 BCE and 113 BCE, two Greeks and two Gauls were buried in an underground chamber. In 228 BCE, it's reckoned by Plutarch that this was in a response to a threat from invading Gauls. And we've seen this particularly in part one, where a community in response to a growing military threat, sacrificed a person to ward off a potentially dire outcome, i.e. the city being taken. Now, if you know your dates, you might recognise 216 BC as being the year Rome was thrashed at Cannae by Hannibal, leaving him with the keys to southern Italy and possibly Rome itself. Though I find criticism of him not besieging Rome quite fallible for a number of reasons, which I won't go into. But if you find me in a pub and buy me a whiskey, I'll happily chew your ear off. Although Livy's accounts of the burial references Cannae, he wrote that it was mostly in response to a range of bad omens, including Vestals committing adultery and who were obviously then buried alive. The final instance occurred in 113 BCE and again it was linked to inappropriate Vestal behaviour, although this is Rome so we can never rule out political dynamics being involved, and this is probably true of all of the Vestal convictions we know of. In a rare show of detail, the omen which sparked this off is mentioned. While out riding her horse, a maiden was struck by lightning. This was interpreted as very, very bad, not just for the maiden and the horse, but for Rome as well. Soon enough, three Vestals were convicted and buried alive. Human sacrifice was taboo in ancient Rome. Unsurprisingly, Cicero had a view on this and railed against it, asking why any people would think it necessary to defile their altars and temples with human victims. But is there a whiff of the double standard in play? After all, Rome was capable of burying people alive. As ever, the devil is in the detail with Cicero. He cited temples and altars, and my suspicion is that to Rome, the fate of those entombed whilst alive was a necessary and extreme religious response to an urgent situation. Rome wasn't casually hoiking people up on altars and sacrificing them for just any old reason. Theirs was a bloodless and reciprocal agreement, which the gods just happened to demand humans for. But there must have been tension surrounding this taboo. In the earliest 1st century BCE, 
a law was passed banning human sacrifice. Pliny linked this to the increased practice of magic in and around Rome, which involved body parts from people who'd been sacrificed being used in spells and magic. Therefore, the law was a response to an internal threat to a development which was on the up. And just to give you one instance of this sort of thing, in 19 CE, a Roman general called Germanicus died. According to Tacitus, body parts were found hidden in his room along with spells. Much of Germanicus's demise was bound up in politics, and this was always a driver for bad behaviour in Rome. Take the death of Marcus Marius Gratidanius, killed by political rivals in 82 BCE at the tomb of someone he'd been a rival of. Even by Roman standards, his killing was horrific and resulted in his throat being cut at that tomb. And though the accounts differ slightly in themselves as subject to prejudice, the theme of spilling blood at a tomb as an act of revenge has baked in sacrificial themes. The first century BCE was brutal in terms of political killings, and even those later venerated for their piety were implicated in human sacrifice. In 41 BCE, Perusia was sacked and Octavian, the later Emperor Augustus, was said to have taken 300 senators and knights and sacrificed them at the altar of the divine Julius Caesar. For obvious reasons, it's been argued as anti-Augustus propaganda, but if so, it had to be the type which could be believed. It had to be culturally relevant. Someone had to think that could have been something he did, and that it took the form of human sacrifice is a comment in itself. What seems to be in play is a confused dynamic within Rome. Human sacrifice is bad, and the most staged version of this has been made bloodless. I'm talking, of course, of the Vestal Virgins. Yet, Rome clearly had skeletons in its closet or altar, and apologies for making that joke for the second time. But Rome wasn't alone in brutality. Perhaps it helped assuage guilt by pointing outwards, but there were plenty of beastly, trouser-wearing folk who may have practised human sacrifice, and could therefore be defined as doing it for all the wrong reasons. Tacitus wrote of the Druids in Britain, who he noted thought it a duty to cover their altars with the blood of captives and to consult their deities through human entrails. Diodorus Siculus went into more detail. Gauls would sacrifice a human and observe how he fell, which limbs twitched and even how the blood ran, and this helped them read the future. As a general who spent a fair bit of time in and around Gaul, Julius Caesar recorded that Gauls practiced human sacrifice both in a military context and a personal one. In the former, it was during the perils of battle, presumably at the outset. For the latter, it might be to help relieve a particular illness or condition. More terrifying was the use of a large figure made of twigs and branches in which men were placed. The construct was then set alight and the men burned alive. Caesar even mentioned who might have been the victims, mainly criminals, but if they run out, then the innocent would do just as well. It's difficult to dissociate what genuinely happened from the propaganda. This is Caesar, after all. But we can't dismiss all of it. The pernicious way victims were selected might seem far-fetched, as it promotes the idea of ubiquitous sacrifices where the Gauls were scrabbling around continually to find someone for the chop. For whatever reason, this made me think of the Simpsons' Treehouse of Horror episode, where the teachers are handing out detentions at whim so they can eat the students. But perhaps a more appropriate modern response to all of this is to think of the Wicker Man film. I've no idea whether the 1973 film or the book Ritual, which inspired it, drew from this directly. It might be that Caesar's description merely funded the wider belief that this sort of thing went on, and in case you wanted to know, nothing has been found which can support this from an archaeological perspective. At least, nothing I've found, and in fair, it's not surprising. 
If anything, the Gallic Wicker Man is a good example of how physical evidence of human sacrifice is scant at best, but the rumours of it are far juicier and thus stick around. A comment by Diodorus Siculus about Gauls burning people alive as well as impaling them offers some form of rationale. It was done every five years and as a part of an agricultural rite. And this fits with other observations where human sacrifice is part of a contract to ensure fertility. Another Greek writer, Strabo, reported human sacrifice in various parts of Europe, and I'll deal with some of those now. In Albania, a person was chosen to be sacrificed and spent a year living up very nicely. The victim was sacrificed while standing up, a priest using a blade to hit him from the side and into the heart. The way he fell provided a prediction on upcoming events. So again, a human is used as a sort of magic eight ball. But once the victim had fallen over and been read, they weren't given to a fire. Instead, they were trampled upon as a rite of purification for everyone else. The Belge or Belge, a tribe in modern-day Belgium and one which I seem to remember Caesar considering were the toughest, had a similar ritual to this. A victim was killed by standing, and in his death throes, they were duly interpreted. Here, though, Strabo adds that they also prepared a colossus of hay and wood, and into it placed men and beasts before setting it alight. This might appear initially as supporting the description of Caesar, but Strabo also includes it is said, which suggests this wasn't something he reliably knew. The Cimbri, hailing from modern-day Denmark, would slit the throats of prisoners and make a prophecy from how the blood poured forth. Just to be sure, they'd cut the body of the victim open and inspect the entrails. If nothing, they were thorough. The Lusitanians were a tribe from a region covering Portugal and Spain. They not only sacrificed horses, but prisoners as well. In a practice reminiscent of the Scythians, they cut off the hands and dedicated them. I wonder if this was a confusion over the two, or something which seemed to make sense in the context of human sacrifice. And of the Scythians, Strabo has them in the past using the skulls of their victims as drinking vessels, although he does a very good job of painting them as diverse people of his day, and capable of being very pleasant. Just check what they use when they say they're going to make you some tea, and use the good bone china. I've come to the end, and quite frankly, good riddance to a horrible subject to research. What I've tried to do in this episode, and the previous one, is demonstrate how human sacrifice is encountered in different ways by the cultures and people I've spoken of. For someone living in the UK in the 21st century, human sacrifice is a very distant thing, and as such, it's easy for me, and perhaps you, to think of it that way and retrospectively apply it to Greece and Rome. Yet, as I've tried to argue, the reality was a bit foggier. Both cultures found it reprehensible on paper, yet their own history wasn't as distant from it, and how they repackaged it culturally is where we can see the tensions and the contradictions. If, after listening to all of this, you want to find me on social media, my website is ancientblogger.com, and I've got all my content and links there. Naturally, I'm on Twitter, at ancientblogger, so come and say hi. My next podcast is likely to be a bit shorter, and certainly far cheerier, and in time for Christmas. Until then, keep safe, and stay well.